Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Rosie Tillis, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. In this episode, we'll be discussing cosmetic facelifts. This episode is part of our quick hit series, which takes our, all of our information directly from the past five to eight years of in-service questions. So I will start by talking about the aging process. Specific changes happen within the skin during aging. The epidermis and dermis thins. There's a loss of sebum production, a decrease in melanocytes, a loss of dermal papillae, and a loss of the dermal epidermal junction. In terms of the more specific changes on a cellular level, there's a decrease in collagen and elastin, a decrease in glycosaminoglycans in longer hand cells and keratinizing cells. The classic signs of facial aging include the loss of volume or deflation of fat compartments of the face in conjunction with the attenuation and laxity of the anatomical retaining ligaments of the face. When the retaining ligaments become attenuated, the appearance of skin laxity results. So you'll see deepened folds, including the nasal labia fold, tear trough, and jowl. Marionette lines are deep creases from the corner of the mouth that extend to the chin. They're actually caused by volume deflation. This is also in combination with the intact mandibular ligaments, which give rise to the lines. Another sign of aging is an obtuse cervical mental angle that's over 120 degrees, and that can result from loose excess skin, a low position of the hyoid bone, or excess preplatismal or subplatismal fat, or retrodisplaced or small chin. All right, we'll talk about <laughs> congenital causes of skin laxity and aging. So cutis laxa is an autosomal dominant genetic disorder with variable inheritance and expressive patterns. The etiology or underlying defect is poor elastic tissues due to degeneration of elastic fibers. These patients can still undergo elective plastic surgery. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, includes more than 10 types of inherited disorders, and the clinical presentation includes skin laxity, hyperextensibility, excessive thinness of skin, joint hypermobility, and aortic aneurysms. And wound healing is poor in these patients, and elective cosmetic procedures should not be performed. Elastoderma is pendulous skin laxity initially involving the trunk and extremities that progress to involve the entire body. Wound healing is unpredictable in these patients, and cosmetic elective surgery should not be performed. Progeria is an autosomal recessive disorder of unknown cause. The findings include premature aging, lax, excessive skin, growth retardation, and cardiac disease, and wound healing is poor and associated with premature death. So again, these patients should not undergo elective cosmetic procedures. So the only patients that they recommend to undergo elective cosmetic procedures is cutis laxa. And then there's Werner syndrome, which is autosomal recessive, and it is characterized by pigmented, indurated, plaque-containing skin, gross, osteoporosis, muscle atrophy, growth retardation, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. And again, this has poor wound healing and small vessel angiopathy are associated. So no elective cosmetic surgery. All right. So some non-surgical treatment for aging faces include Kybella and tretinoin. We actually had a previous lecture on injectables um, and peels that you can listen to if you would like. Um, so Kybella, which is deoxycholic acid, is used for an obtuse cervical mental angle and preplatismal fat. 
It works by disrupting the adipocyte cell membranes. Tretinoin is used for fine rhytids and mechanism of tretinoin, which is a vitamin A derivative, includes increased epidermal and dermal layer thickness, elimination of dysplasia, atypia, and microscopic actinic keratoses, uniform dispersion of melanin granules, and increased collagen and glycosaminoglycan deposition of papillary dermis, as well as thinning of the stratum corneum. The mechanism of tretinoin or vitamin A derivative is that it inhibits AP1 transcription factor. It does cause some early side effects, including erythema, photosensitivity, and desquamation. For anatomy of the face for cosmetic facelift, there is the aesthetic analysis of the face, and this may be simplified by dividing the face into equal horizontal thirds and vertical fists. The upper third includes the forehead and brows extending from the anterior hairline to the glabella and brows. The middle third includes the mid-face, eyes, and nose, and extends from the glabella to the subnasale. The lower third includes the lower cheeks, jawline, and neck, and extends from the subnasale to the menton. And the width of the face may be divided into equal fists by lines dropped from the lateral canthi and medial canthi. So the great auricular nerve supplies sensation to the earlobe, concha, and posterior auricle. It exits the deep neck along the posterior border of the sternocleidomastoid muscle and then travels parallel and posterior, parallel and posterior to the external jugular vein, one centimeter cranial. We've been tested on all those three things and bifurcates into anterior and posterior branches. McKinney's point, which we've also been tested on, is the location where the great auricular nerve crosses the mid transverse belly of the sternocleidomastoid muscle at a point 6.5 centimeters below the caudal edge of the bony external auditory canal. So 6.5 centimeters below the caudal edge of the bony external auditory canal. The most superficial location is approximately one third the distance from the EAC to the clavicular origin of the SCM. And that's also been tested on. The temporal branch of the facial nerve is found just deep to the temporoparietal fascia. The facial nerve innervates the mimetic muscles of the face and exits the stylomastoid foramen in the main trunk. Pes and serinus can be found one centimeter inferior and posterior midway between the tragal pointer and the posterior belly of the digastric muscle. It then splits into five branches, temporal, zygomatic, buccal, marginal, and cervical, and innervates the muscles on the deep surface, except for three muscles, which if you've listened to our Dr. Grotting lecture, he gave us a great mnemonic MLB, the mentalis levator anguli oris and the buccinator, all branches arborize except the temporal and marginal mandibular. So they are more prone to injury, um, or they're more prone to paralysis if injured. The difference between the cervical branch and the marginal mandibular branch on exam. So both can cause lip depression weakness, but the cervical branch injury patients would still be able to purse their lips as the mentalis and orbicularis oris is still intact. The marginal mandibular nerve, which we'll talk about more in other lectures, is located deep to the SMAS and can travel as low as one to two centimeters below the mandible along its entire course. The spinal accessory nerve or cranial nerve 11. So this sometimes can be injured in a facelift. It innervates the SCM and trapezius muscles and it exits the cranium through the jugular foramen, passes deep to the styloid process and under the SCM, exits posterior border of the SCM within two centimeters superior to the great auricular nerve and then is tightly sandwiched between the skin and muscle fascia. So lateral neck, think spinal accessory nerve and lateral neck. The auriculotemporal nerve innervates the external auditory meatus, upper helix and temporal scalp. And then the SMAS, which were commonly, commonly tested on or superficial musculoaponeurotic system from superiorly to inferior starts with the galea, temporoparietal fascia, cheeks mass, platysma and superficial cervical fascia. 
The deep fascial layer or deep to this mass includes the cranial periosteum, deep temporal fascia, parotidomasseteric fascia, and deep cervical fascia. And the deep temporal fascia, as you know, splits into two layers, which surround the superficial temporal fat pad, not the muscle, and attach anteriorly and posteriorly on the zygomatic arch. And this is continuous with the anterior and posterior parotidomasseteric fascia, respectively. All right. So anesthesia in facelifts, intravenous sedation can be used in facelifts. It decreases the risk for deep venous thrombosis. It can be associated with increased operative time though. You will often infiltrate with tumescent solution for anesthesia and hemostasis as well. Complications of infiltration with tumescent includes facial nerve weakness from residual effect of the local. It can take several hours to wear off, and so reasonable management if you suspect a complication of the facial nerve is observation for that short time to wait for the local to wear off before you can tell if it is a true injury. It, in question stems, this will often be described as minimal edema and facial nerve weakness. The ASPS task force has released some guidelines uh, regarding facelifts and the current recommendations on timing suggest that procedures be limited to less than six hours and begin early in the morning. Any increase over four hours in surgery time is associated with post-operative nausea and vomiting. There is no increased risk of major complications. The next thing we'll talk about is brow lifts. So there are multiple incisions or approaches. The first is endoscopic, which does not address the forehead length and can result in inadequate removal of glabellar muscles, resulting in early recurrence of glabellar lines and frowning action, but can be useful in mild cases. The endotemporal approach is useful for patients with thin hair or lateral ptosis that can be corrected by the temporal incision. The pretracheal approach is appropriate for patients with a long forehead who need a strip of skin excision. The transcoronal brow lift is most useful in a patient with a short forehead and deep rightids, so you can hide a scar. The transpalpebral brow lift incision does not address forehead length as well. Complications of a brow lift include numbness of the central forehead or paresthesias, which are typically related to traction injury of the supraorbital nerve, a division of V1. Some techniques for facelift incisions. So general methods include making it an artfully placed incision, which follows the anatomic contours, skin elevation to allow access to this mass, tightening of this mass through elevation, plication, or imbrication, anchoring of this mass, then redraping the soft tissues, followed by careful skin closure with minimal tension on the earlobe. So a few tips and techniques. A short scar rhididectomy includes the minimal access cranial suspension technique, and you may need a posterior incision in patients with significant excess skin, as an excess vertical fold of skin may result in the lateral neck. The high SMAS technique divides the SMAS transversely at the superiormost portion of the zygomatic arch. It can be performed safely as the frontal branch of the facial nerve runs in close proximity to the periosteum of the zygomatic arch. The posterior incision should follow the hairline of the posterior scalp to allow excess skin to be removed without creating an irregular or misplaced line. And then whether or not to include SMAS tightening is something to consider. It increases the longevity of the result. This is based on circumstantial evidence, but no conclusive evidence. The SMAS tightening also decreases the tension of skin closure, uh, although it puts the facial nerve at greater danger than a skin-only facelift. 
Use of fibrin gluin facelifts has demonstrated a decreased rates of ecchymosis, edema, seroma, and prolonged induration, but it is safe. A secondary rhididectomy, so a repeat facelift. Patients are typically older and have more comorbid diseases like depression and hypertension. Typically, though, there is less skin that is excised, this mass is thinner, and there is less vascular compromise likely because of the delay phenomenon. You're essentially delaying the entire layer. Thanks, Rosie. Complications of facelifts are many and we're tested on them frequently. The first one is earlobe numbness. So this is from great auricular nerve injury, which we talked about earlier, and this can be from neuropraxia, suture entrapment, exonotmesis, or neurotmesis. The great auricular nerve is injured 6% of the time in facelifts. To avoid injury, raise the platysma at the interior border of the SCM, and the SMAS suture should be placed posteriorly to McKinney's point. You should repair if noticed during surgery. Transient earlobe numbness is common after facelift, and the majority should return in six months. So if you see a patient after a rhididectomy with transient earlobe numbness or with earlobe numbness, you observe. After six months, consider re-exploration for anesthesia with allodynia, which is pain. So if they have a neuroma. Hematoma can be a common early complication following a facelift. The resorption of adrenaline in the early post-op period can lead to rebound hypertension and subsequent hematoma, which is much higher likelihood in hypertensive patients. Patients should take their blood pressure medicine in the morning. Intraoperative and post-operative hypertension control is important, and this will typically present as pain, firm swelling, and bruising within the first six hours of surgery. There's Fry's syndrome, which describes gustatory sweating after aberrant reinnervation of cutaneous sweat glands after disruption of the auriculotemporal nerve branches. And this is more likely after a parodidectomy, but it is worth mentioning. The spinal accessory nerve or cranial nerve 11 injury, this nerve again innervates SCM and trapezius muscles and is more likely to be injured with lateral neck dissection. You should observe until about three months. And if there is no clinical recovery at this time, they should undergo evaluation by an EMG and nerve conduction study. This is then followed by surgical exploration with neurolysis repair or grafting if the EMG confirms your results. A salivary leak can occur from direct injury to the parotid gland, and this is typically self-limiting. Treatment includes minimizing salivary secretion. So regular percutaneous drainage, temporary drain, compression, antihistamines, scopolamine patches, bland diet, and Botox injections directly into the gland. The marginal mandibular nerve injury to this can create the inability to depress the affected side of the lower lip, can be attributable to traction, cautery sutures, or surgical division. Spontaneous recovery is usually noted within three to four months, and you should observe rather than obtain studies, re-explore, et cetera, before that. The abnormal side is the side that does not depress. So remember that in the stem. Treatment includes, again, observation followed by Botox injection after six months on the contralateral side for symmetry. There is also the pixie ear deformity, which results from excessive trimming of the flap adjacent to the base of the earlobe. And you can fix this with B to Y or re-advancement of the facial flap. And finally, there's wound healing issues, which should initially be managed with local wound care. You can re-advance and perform scar revision once the wound has completely healed and skin laxity has returned. All right, a few miscellaneous points as we wrap up here. Radiofrequency facial rejuvenation um, is completed with ultrasonic waves, laser technology, or cryolipolysis. This uses high-frequency alternating electricity currents to alter the biological tissues. It causes collagen remodeling and neocollagenesis through a controlled wound healing response. Ultrasound is used to disrupt tissues with sonic vibrations or sound. 
Cryolipolysis reduces the subcutaneous fat without reducing other tissues. And then the last note is in about facial allotransplantation. Aging after facial allotransplantation occurs from the reduction of bone and non-fat subcutaneous soft tissues. So that concludes our lecture, our quick hits on the cosmetic facelift and brow lift. Stay tuned for more quick hits to help in your studying for this year's in service. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.